So you're hearing me loud and clear because I can hear you very loud and clearly like the voice of God himself. Okay. Yeah, I know you like it. And I suppose today we're going to be dropping a big atomic bomb. Many of our listeners will feel very disgruntled with us after it, and then many will feel quite pleased. Actually, Navjeet Singh Ji, we are doing this episode on the request of a few brothers and sisters who serve in, you know, foreign militaries. Now, surprisingly enough, they come from Sikh families. But, you know, like we have discussed in the past, in the States and Canada, if you look at Sikh kids, you will see a lot of issues and problems with them. And let's not get started on that. Because then, you know, I won't shut up for the whole night. And amazingly enough, these kids or these young men and women who are serving, you know, they don't know where, where the next bullet is going to come from. Or what, you know, workplace incident or hazard is going to finish them off. But, you know, despite those circumstances for them still to have that scholarly edge to say that, you know, we need to intellectually go ahead and define our Sikh identity for the nation we serve so more Sikhs can be allowed to serve. Well, you know, a majority of the community always proves ungrateful. That's a very big sacrifice. And they should be remembered for that. And their names will be written in letters of gold in the future history of the Sikhs. Would you agree with my assessment? Mm, yes. Second request we have is that if anyone out there is using our name to push their agenda or their views, come to us with a civil tone, politeness, humility, and respect. Because we respect you, you respect us. Give us the evidence that we have been, you know, instigating those people or maybe setting them up to hurt your sentiments. 101 solid proof where we might have said it to them specifically directly in the form of chats or maybe in the form of you know private messages, then we can do something about it. But if you come to us threatening sheep, you know, come to our city, we will smash your face, we know who you are, we know where you live, if you don't say this, if you don't say that. Well, at the end of the day, you're going to get what you give, right? So if you're going well, to come with threats, yep. I live in UP, so I don't think the threat's going to work here. <laughs> so if you come <laughs> to us with an attitude, if you come to us with an attitude, and then afterwards go around saying, Ma, we did this, we did that, well, that's all good. Because at the end of the day, you come to us the way you come to us, the same way we will respond to you. You have no evidence. You haven't even listened to us. This is what they will confess later on. We didn't even listen to them. And then you come shouting and, you know, crying and moaning at us, threatening us. And then you get something chucked back at you. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you just get reciprocated for what you give. And if you give bad, you get bad as well. Agreed? Mm -hmm. Right. So moving on from that stage down here, you know, just something we decided to clarify. Moving on now. The biggest issue which is splitting our community, and I'll say it again, I've always said it all the time, and this time I'll be a bit more specific, is the lack of prachar currently. On one hand, we have the traditionalists, you know, the ones who claim that they have been started by the gurus themselves. 
on the other hand, we all, you know, obviously have the Sikh missionary colleges and, you know, the missionary brigade, which hasn't been very active for the past decade. On the third, we have the upgrades. So, you know, imagine a triangle. And now on this triangle, on, you know, the bottom line, you can write traditionalists. On the left, you can write missionaries. On the right, you can write upgrades. The traditionalists claim, and this is a personal experience I had this week, is that if you put on the panjikakars, that if you have the panjikakars, what happens is if you die, a sinner Guru Gobind Singh Ji comes maybe every seven or 12 days and pulls you out of the hell in whichever hell you're in by your hair and takes you to such land. That's the traditional interpretation, right? Get another jail free card. Now, interestingly enough, Navjit Singh Ji, uh, do you know that Gany Singh was an Amritari? The president of India, yes. Right. Now, you know, there are certain elements of her community who are always, you know, blaming Gany Singh for a lot of things. Do you think in their minds, from their assessment, using their logic, Guru Gobind Singh Ji also pulled Gany Singh out? Mm, uh, pretty much. <laughs> Well, if, if they believe what they believe, then according their, to their own belief, this is true. So we had actually a fan, G actually contacted us from the UK, and that's what she told us. She went and asked us in a Gurdwara, and this was 20 years ago, and she got kicked out for asking that question because they said, no, Guru Gobind Singh, you would not have done this. The same people who promote that the Kakars are a get-out-of-jail card. Now, Let's go on to the other side, the missionaries. I mean, all the missionary literature I've read, I suppose from 1950 to 1975, they were active, but after that, they have no literature worth the name. Would you agree with me? Mm, well, I'm not in a position to agree or disagree because I haven't read them thoroughly. <laughs> because other than the Institute of... Yep. Because... Other than the Institute of Sikh Studies in Chandigarh, I haven't seen any of the other, you know, affiliated branches do anything. And it's a pretty crying shame that the missionaries have such big intelligent figures, but none of them have produced any comprehensive work on Sikhi other than, you know, Inder Sinkak and Gurbak Sinkalakana. Those are the only two I know personally. If there's anyone waiting in the future, that's up to them. Now, the upgrades. Here's a very interesting thing. Navjit Singh Ji, tell me, when does the slippery slope end if it starts? It ends with the complete implosion of the civilization. Complete implosion. Now, where in Gurbani does Guru Nanak say that my successor, this is where Guru Nanak we are talking about, that my successor explicitly is Guru Angad? Do we have that written anywhere in the Guru Granth Sahib? Mm, I don't think so. Nope, not in Guru Nanak's own hands. Right? Point one. Point two. Where in Gurbani, where in the Gurbani of Guru Granth Sahib does it say that we Sikhs have ten Gurus? Only six Gurus have their Bani within the Guru Granth Sahib. Where does it say we have ten Gurus? Mm, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Right? Now, if you look at it from the upgrade logic, why did Noi Guru ever write that Guru Nanak was born in Vaisak? Mm, 
Is there any description in Guru Granth Sahib what kind of clothes he used to wear? There's no description. So at the end of the day, how do the upgrades know that what they're believing in, what they're calling the Guru Granth Sahib? You know, because one thing I've seen about the upgrade camp, I had one of their uh, figures ring me up, and this was some time ago, and they were saying, they were, you know, how do we know that Pai Sukhasang was real and not a Pujari creation? Now, I know you're going, you're trying hard not to laugh about that. Leaving aside the whole ridiculousness of that comment, you know, this is how they operate. They actually help the Pujari quite a lot. Upgrades actually end up helping the Pujari like this. So the Pujari comes into the Gurdwara, makes supplies about the Panjikakars, makes supplies about the Guru Granth Sahib. And you know what the upgrades do? They come and start dismissing the elements which the Pujari is using. Now, look, the Pujari is hiding behind the Panjikakars and using them for, you know, the wrong purposes. Doesn't necessarily mean that the Panjikakars are fake or that, you know, they're a Pujari creation because, you know, how would the upgrades even prove they're a Pujari creation? But it's really easy for them to stand up and say just because the Pujari uses them, just because the Pujari wears them, it's a Pujari creation. So how long before they turn that logic on themselves and then say, well, wait a second, how do we know that Sikhi is what it is today and that Sikhs are supposed to believe in the Guru Granth Sahib or not? How long before you have that, you know, civilizational implosion on their end? Well, I'll put my hat on. I'll tell you that a slippery, slippery slope doesn't exist. <laughs> the thing is... You're you just know, a conspiracy the thing is, the Guru Granth Sahib is a principle-based, you know, we will have to call it a text at the end of the day. That's what Granth means. Or that is Siddhanta. The Guru Granth Sahib is Siddhanta, which is principle-based. However, it does have descriptions of some aspects of Khalsa Arhat. Now, the issue down here, which we need to look at significantly, is that, you know, the Western world divided religion from its political and social roots after the Renaissance. So, you know, when you had the division of state and faith, it became more or less an issue that faith is inside your heart, right? Uh, yeah, you could say that, yeah, yeah. And in a way, this, in a very subtle way, agrees with the Sanatan perception that, you know, this world is nothing, but power should only be retained for enforcing and ensuring the continuity of the caste system, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have Islamic, Christian, and, you know, Abrahamic uh, ideology, which basically says that religion is the political, right? Well, Islam uh, has all got its own political code with it. So yeah, yep. that's that. Then you have Sikhi, and what's actually happened is, and here's the thing, you know, since the SGPC got corrupted in the 60s, no, you know, you can say profound scholarship has been done on the Sikh ethos and how Sikhs see the world. But you have to note that in Sikhi, there is a fine distinction between state and faith, but faith is as external as the state. Mm -hmm. now, now, yep. now a man of faith is expected by the gurus to go and confront the state when it regresses. 
And what needs to be understood here is that if you look at the political nature of religion, we need to answer a few questions here. Why did Guru Nanak feel compelled to find Sikhi if all other faiths led to perfectness? Well, <laughs> the question seems simple, but it's not. Because if you were to if, answer that question... If, if, if you were claiming that... All if you're claiming that all religions lead to God, then why did Guru Nanak did, did what he did? Right. Now, on the other hand, if all religions lead to God, then why are they so susceptible to corruption? Well, because the, uh, the answer to this, to this question is because corrupt people exist and they can easily take over, the, let's say, the reins of theology. Now, this is exactly like Bhakt Kabir Shabad, which is misinterpreted to argue for vegetarianism. But what Bhakt Kabirji is asking is that what's more powerful, fish, meat, drugs, alcohol, or pilgrimage sites which are unable to convince, you know, religious uh, individuals from, you know, discarding these elements. You know, he's asking the Brahmins and the Mullahs and the Kwajis, everyone else, the religious crowd, he's asking them this. You say your pilgrimage sites are the houses of God. Well, why is it that people visit those houses of God and then every evening they have a bag, they eat meat? Why can't your pilgrimage site convince them to discard these things if they're you know, sinful, like you say? He's not passing judgment on whether we should be consuming those you know, items or not. He's just you know, pointing at religious hypocrisy. Similarly, if religion, as it's propagated to be, was so perfect, why are corrupt individuals able to overtake it? Well, <laughs> the answer to this question is too deep to be discussed in a single episode. Single episode. So, fundamentally, the distinction we can draw down here is that we have misunderstood the purpose of religion, the existence of religion, and ultimately, we have misunderstood what Sikhi is. Now, this is a very crucial distinction to make down here. A lot of people have been selected by Guru Nanak in the past, by Guru Nanak's views, to be more precise. Those people today run around claiming that Guru Nanak said you can do whatever rituals you want to as long as your heart is pure. It only becomes dogma when your heart is impure. And they will point out many of these distorted and perverted uh, sakis from various Janam sakis to argue their case. However, you need to look at something down here. How many religions talk about the other world? Well, nearly all of them. Does Sikhi talk about the other world? Not in that context. Not in that context, right? So if your beliefs start from this point that you're going to get rewards in another world and you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to wear a certain dress, you have to wear certain marks, certain threads, certain, you know, or, you know, recite certain words, etc. All this to get some good stuff in the next world. And Gurbani basically is saying that, you know, none of these religions know anything about the next world. Doesn't that mean that if your starting point is a lie, the identity you base on that starting point is a lie as well? Well, if you come to me and tell me I was born out of sin, I'll probably punch you in the face. So, if there is an 
identity which is based on falsity. Guru Nanak is basically saying that your identity is false because it's based on falsity. On the other hand, if your religion is talking about living in this world like Sikhi does, it has no particular concern about the next world, then doesn't that mean it's rooted in the truth and the identity which emanates from that starting point is true and real? Well, I think in the reincarnation episode, we did, did something. Uh, I think uh, there was a point made that uh, if you convince people that this world is not real and this is just a test for you, the real world is after you die, the after afterworld or the next life or whatever, it's the best way to prevent social change. It best, it's the best way to ensure that those who are in power, those who are in power will stay in power because there's no incentive to change this world the fact is that in our lives so far, you know, I've seen this happen a lot of times. The same people who claim that Guru Nanak and Guru Gobind Singh are one jot are the ones dividing them on this basis. That Guru Nanak was a pacifist. Guru Nanak talked about internal spirituality. But Guru Gobind Singh solely cre- uh, concentrated on external matters. That's how they end up dividing the Gurus. But when you read Guru Nanak's Gurbani in the light it's supposed to be read in, not through the Western secular scientific atheistic or the Snatan perspective, more or less through the Gurmat perspective, you realize that Guru Nanak was very concerned about this world and his spirituality consisted of pursuing discipline in this world, right? The path to perfectness. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Right. I guarantee you, if Osama, Stalin and Mao were in the same room with a guy who was deeply spiritual, all three of them will gang up on him, guaranteed. <laughs> 101%. They will forget their differences that they have with each other. They will say, let's be the spiritual guy. Yep, exactly. And the thing is that if, you know, Gurnanak's spirituality is rooted in living in this world in a practical and perfect way, the thing is that identity which comes from that spirituality is very unique. Now, you know, this is what Professor Saib Singh pointed out, and I fully agree and endorse this comment. The Bani of the Pakts is full of doom and gloom, and Guru Nanak's comparative analysis, the Guru's comparisons with the Pakt, ends and begins at how they see the dehumanization of humanity, right? How humanity is dehumanizing itself. However, the mm-hmm. Pakts don't have any solution. That's why their Bani is incorporated into the Guru Granth Sahib that, you know, to show how far humans have fallen. But the Pugs never had a solution. Guru Nanak had a radical solution. And that was, you know, Guru Nanak disagreed with Pugs, Breed and Kabir's, this, you know, their other worldliness. He never accepted it. Mm-hmm. So, based on that concept, he and the subsequent gurus developed a very unique identity which was finally ratified by Guru Gobind Singh Ji in 1698. And you need to comprehend something down here that that identity was a long time in the making. Now, obviously, if you have that identity, see, this is a comment I came across on the internet a few days ago. I was at the airport and Amritari got arrested for, you know, uh, smuggling drugs, Right. Yeah, I've seen that video. Yep. There's another video where someone's saying that, you know, if a paya from UP comes, he doesn't have any case, he doesn't have any pakars, but he's still honest. Wahiguru will be more, uh, you know, pleased with him than the Amritari who does 
you know, bad, goes against her head. All these comments have their own merit. But at the end of the day, why are these preachers and individuals implying that it's the Amrit which is the problem, the identity which is the problem, and not the individual using their identity? Okay. Understand this point in a, in a, with a different example. Yep. I've actually seen people who say that uh, they took Amrit when nothing magical happened and now they're lost interest. Feeling me, Nothing. No change in, the, in their life. You know, they didn't go visited by any gods and nothing in their dreams. Nothing has improved in their lives. They now, now they're totally lost in trust in it. But the way they thought or what they thought about Amrit wasn't true at all to begin with. Hmm. You, you make a very accurate point down there is that, you know, the way those thought about Amrit is not accurate to begin with. You know, no, 101%. 101%. 100%, 100% agree with you. Now, you know, look at it. Since this Baba culture started, you know, in the early 20th century, anyone can walk in and ask you to receive Amrit and they get Amrit, right? On the other hand, if you look at historical examples, you had to prove you were ready for it. You had to do a lot of challenges and tasks and, you know, surmount a lot of obstacles before you were given Amrit. Why? Was that Amrit different to today's Amrit? Or is it the understanding which was different about what Amrit and the Khalsa is? Uh, today, if you want to take Amrit, all they need you to do is have some, you start growing some hair, on a, you take a, take a shower and go to the good that's it. Hmm. Now, the thing is, true Amrit is within you. That's what Gurbani says. So now before the upgrades ask, well, why did Guru Gobind Singh you have to go and do the ceremony? But the, well, the thing is, at the end of the day, if you are living in this world, if you're talking about this world, you know, the Sikh ethos is so radical. I mean, so radical, in fact, that I have no problem in believing that, you know, during the defense of Sayyid, the poor Guru Nanak probably fought with a sword hand-to-hand -hand with the Mughals. You know, at the end of the day, you have to consider this. If you're talking about such radical things as societal perfection, as perfecting yourself, pursuing what it is you want, society is not going to be happy with you. You know, and people like you have to make a stand for your values and your beliefs, because if you allow them to be steamrolled over, there is no point in you living. Right. Mm, yeah. Uh, okay. And, okay. Uh, can, can you just turn up your volume? Yep. Much better. Slightly better. Yep. So, you know, if you're talking about these things, which Guru Nanak has, you know, told us in Gurbani, you need to know how to defend yourself. You need that militant spirit. It is a militant spirit. It is a military value which Guru Nanak has given the Sikhs. Would you agree that the discipline of Guru Nanak is a military discipline? Yeah, it's a big part of it, yes. So I finished reading this book recently by John Keegan. It is called The Mask of Command. Yep. The thing is that he discusses two ideals. There's the you know soldier-scholar ideal, which is favored by modern democracies, where the soldier basically comprehends that war is an extension of politics by other means and fights for a you know disjointed leadership. 
On the other hand, you have the warrior leader Pritigam, where the warrior is the leader, the political leader, as well as the military leader, and understands how to balance out the stakes. That's how Guru Nanak actually, you know, gave us what he did, was the warrior leader Pritigam, which ultimately, you know, made us who we are. You need to look at that. See, here's the problem I have with the traditionalists, missionaries, and upgrades. Look at the way they read Gurbani. Make that little face and you know, like well, like do you guys have the coronavirus or something which is disallowing you from you know speaking up loudly? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's that you know perspective they accuse us of having a Western perspective, Sanatan perspective, but you know, when you look at them and their Gurdavirus, look at the way they read Gurbani and you're thinking, Oh my god, like you know. What the hell are you trying to say down here? You know, when they read the Shabbat, the Murakagandapave Mumar, look at the way they read it. You know, you don't even hear the end at all. If you read it with a dynamic voice, Murakagandapave Mumar, at least you know what Guru Nanak is saying. You know, there's a force down there, an emphasis, and those people lack the emphasis because they have this picture of Guru Nanak in their minds, which dissociates him from the Khalsa, whose ideology, whose philosophy, whose principles, whose values, whose beliefs he established. True. Right? So, Guru Nanak establishes the Sikhs of fraternity committed to discipline and perfection, even at the expense of their own lives. And these Sikhs are given a militant spirit that, hey, if someone comes along to your property and steals something from you, grab the guy, seek justice. You know, do not stand for getting steamrolled over. Ultimately, this mantle passes to Guru Angad, Guru Amardas, Guru Ramdas, Guru Arjun. And we know from Guru Arjun, the Sikhs begin their militarization, Guru Hargobind. You know, all this didn't happen overnight. As, you know, MacLeod and many other historians I want to argue, you know, that uh, Guru Hargobind had to uh, militarize the Sikhs for, you know, military purposes. Historically, if you look at it, all this militarization which occurred due to, you know, temporary external factors, that militarization never lasted much more than a generation. So how is it that the fifth and sixth Guru's militarization still continues even today? Wouldn't you say that that's the natural progression of any, let's say, a nation, a movement or civilization? It is, but do we remember the Buddhist warriors today or do we remember the Buddhist monks today? No, the, the short, fat Buddhist monks with the, I think it's, a, it's like orangish clothes and a big smile, that's it. And they're all bold and they all know Kung Fu. So how come we have the Sikh warriors lasting even today? So to, you know, flip over onto the other side, they claim that, you know, the gurus, uh, the later gurus introduced innovations. There were no innovations. The Sikh praxis was radical enough to attract trouble. Guru Nanak laid down the principles. Subsequent gurus put them into action. That's all there is to it. There was nothing innovative and nothing new. Now, coming down to Guru Gobind Singh, here's a theory I developed, and I actually had it uh, I passed it on to Sardar Inderjit Singh of you know Afghan Hindus and Sikhs fame, and he confirmed that this theory has been proposed before. And here's why. This is where we're getting into a very unique part of this episode where we're looking at the history and we're not only looking at Sikh history alone. Initially from the onset, the conspicuous part of the Sikh identity always involved here. 
Do you agree? Can you hear me? What do you? Yes, I can hear you. So, what do you agree with my assessment that from the start, the Sikh identity always involved here? Uh, that's yeah. I would agree. All the gurus have had here. Even even the pugs all had here. All had here. Now, why they had here? Why here is associated with spirituality? That is not really our main concern. If it was, then you know we would be no less than the pujaris. That you know you're here magnifies divine currents or whatever i mean we don't know what the science behind it is we won't comment on that part at all now the issue regarding this here aspect was brought up in a very dynamic way in a 2004 indian court case gurleen core and others versus the sgpc and we have discussed this court case before you can look it up on the internet and there's actually a book about it as well you know the sea code and the guru Granth Sahib by gurteh singh ias because, you know, kudos to Gurteh Singh, you know, much to his credit, he was the last person standing who had a Sikh victory because Gurleen Court and others were arguing they're Sahajatari Sikhs and Sahajatari Sikhs are allowed to cut their hair. However, the historic proof points out that Sahajataris were Sikhs or individuals who wanted to be Sikhs who had the case, but who were not Amritari, right? Now, since the, you know, the 20s Gurdwara Management Act has come into force and the Indian government uses it. We have our own clowns running around overseas saying that, you know, you can't call monas patet because patet is a very uh, insulting term. Okay, we need to allow them votes and gurdwaras. Well, the thing is, at the end of the day, the Sikh political principle is that not everyone gets the vote. Only people who have a stake in the matter get the vote and they have to be a metari, but the mona voice will be considered. However, at the end of the day, if you're born into a Sikh family and you're a Mona, how long are you going to stay a Mona for and claim you're a Sikh? That's up to them to decide. And I know that quite a few of my family members when they got a little bit older, like when the kids grew up, they started wearing turbans again. They started wearing turbans again. So, you know, obviously they're coming into under societal pressure and they don't think it looks cool because that's what you ask kids today. Hey, why don't you want to wear the kakar so it isn't looking cool? However, maybe they didn't have enough hair left for a ponytail, so they say, Yeah, okay, <laughs> tell me it is. Yep. On the other hand, you have the Dil Saf excuse that Vahiguru only looks at your Dil. Well, I mean, if Vahiguru only looks at your Dil, well, then, you know, at the end of the day, there's no point in you existing anyway. Why are you running around, you know, for BLM and whatnot, shouting out, We need to prove and do Sarbata Dapala when it's all about your Dil? So if you have Sarbata Dapala in your Dil, why are you even, you know, getting into politics and arguing against politicians? Well, I think they're looking for allies. See, I had, a, I had an individual actually tell me one of the upgrade missionary types, like, oh, we don't even know the name of our gurus. We don't know whether this is Sakir Hat or not what we're doing at the moment. And I asked him, so why are you Sikh? And he didn't have an answer. Now, the next day, when I put up a post saying, questioning, you know, Ravi Singh Khal said, well, that, you know, should we actually be helping others at the expense of ourselves? He got really angry. And what it comes down to is like this. We don't want to keep the case. We don't want to keep the uniform. We don't want to have the discipline. We don't want to put in the hard miles. But when it comes to shagging white women, we will argue that we're from the same fraternity as the guy who's going around giving free food. Well, I wouldn't go that far because I don't know. I mean, this is just based on personal experience. I mean, 
otherwise I'm sure that, you know, not everyone would want to do that to shag white woman, but I'm just giving an example down here. End of the day, you know, if we don't start on the path to perfection, if we don't discipline ourselves, it's no one's fault, you know, and making these, you know, excuses, you know, like those excuses kids make in the school that the dog ate my homework, this happened, that happened. Well, if you don't even put your feet forward and start saying that, you know, Vahigru knows my dill is soft, I want Gerpa, I want Hukam. See, this funny thing down here that, you know, I need Hukam to keep my kakas. And you know why they say that? Put your hand over your heart and tell me I'm lying. And I want the listeners to do this as well. Send me in your thoughts afterwards. They know that the Rehet Mariada is very kark. It's pretty hard to follow. I say this myself as an Amritad. So if they fail, at least they have a scapegoat. Eva Higruda Hukam see that today I did my Nithnam. I couldn't resist it. I had five pegs. A Hukam see. It was Hukam that me, I was very weak. I did not have the internal mental fortitude and the strength. I took Amrit, I relapsed, I became a Patik. Right? Who do you scapegoat? Wahiguru. No personal responsibility, no sense of personal moral responsibility anywhere at all. Personal responsibility, as we have discussed earlier, it's something yeah, that one or two people do not wish to have. Right, because Navjit Singh Ji, at the end of the day, the perfect Gurmukh, the perfect Gursik, the perfect Khalsa. See, the Khalsa is the plural fraternity of all committed Sikhs. Those Sikhs take responsibility for their own failures. They don't blame it on Vahiki. Why would you do that to begin with? Because it feels nice when you live in the West and you have this societal pressure when you're lost. You know, when you're lost. See, this is especially for the boys. When you're lost between whether masturbation is a sin or not, it always feels good to say that, you know, I went and did something wrong, but it was Wahigru's hukam because that's what they say. But then these same people will go out and ring the police when someone comes and whacks them in the face. Isn't that hukam? Well, if everything is hukam, then the world is perfect the way it is. You're right. The world is perfect the way it is. But they have misunderstood Hukam, and that's another talk altogether. We will discuss that in another episode. Now, regarding the history of the Kakars, you need to understand one thing. These five elements, and uh, we would like to thank Professor Vikram Singh Majel for telling us this, these five elements aren't uniquely Sikh. Sikhs can't you know, claim a monopoly over Ges, Girpan, Gara, Ganga, Kach, right? Examples? The case has existed even before the Sikhs came on the spot. I mean, case has been there, I suppose, here has been there even before humanity came out of the biological, you know, cataclysmic soup from which it first emerged. Right? That's the case. Kirpan, it's a weapon. I mean, using the most fundamental definition of Kirpan, you can just about fit every bladed weapon in there. So, another aspect altogether, Sikhs adopted the Kirpan. Now, of course, if some community says they adopted it from us, well, then that's just typical bullshit because, I mean, you might as well say that the white people got kirpans from us. Ha, ha, ha. Secondly, the kach. It was pretty much in existence in Western Europe at the time. 
So we have discussed Kes, Kirpa, and Kach. Kanga, yes, people with long hair used it. I mean, the most primary examples we have is that the Spartans, and this was noted by many European observers, they actually made comparisons between the Sikhs and the Spartans. The Spartans and, you know, Vikings and even Macedonians, the long-haired ones at least, they used to keep a kanga in their hair when they used to go to war. You can actually go and you know, if you can get an opportunity to visit the Egyptian museum or something where the Egyptians artifacts are kept. Yes. And the combs there are very similar to what we have as kanga. Yep, that's right. Now, regarding the kara, the kara has a very unique military aspect. It's not a bracelet. I mean, people come up with these, you know, very classic excuses. And I know there was a preacher and our friend, and he was saying that Guru Maharaj gave the kara because if lightning falls on a Sikh, the Sikh won't die. And the next day, lightning fell onto his house. And I just asked him, Ganiji, why couldn't you just have gotten two sinks to stand up there with their karas? Uh, he never talked to me again. <laughs> so that was the end of that friendship. But <laughs> the karas we have today, Navjit Singhji, Guru Gobind Singhji, if he came back, would probably turn his face away in embarrassment if he saw the karas we have today. Right? If you, uh, I think the ones we have today uh, from back in the old days, they're like, compared to the ones we wear today, they are massive, they serve a purpose, and a, a normal guy today can't wear them. If you look at Guru Hargobind Sahibji's battlefield karas, I mean, if you look at them, you can tear down today's brick wall with those two karas alone. Yeah, I've seen the picture of them. I haven't seen them personally, but I've seen the picture. When Alexander the Great and his Macedonians marched into India, you need to remember something. You know, he was away from home for a long time, so there was a lot of military upgrading, military of evolution, which happened among his ranks, right? They adopted many, many new tactics, many new weapons, and along the way, it's not sure where they picked it up, but they had leather karas. So, you know, they were made to fit to size, and they could ward off, you know, blows from bronze and copper weapons and stone clubs. But the only problem was that as time progressed, those karas would actually split on the arms of the Greeks. You know, it's only leather, dried leather. Over time, it would split. So they had a whole industry for that. But, you know, leather wasn't the cheapest material around. You had to hunt the animal. You had to, you know, dry it out, tan it. I mean, most Greeks had them, but most didn't. But the main purpose they served was to defend the combat's the combatants' rest. Around the time of the Sikh gurus, the kara, I mean, if you look at Guru Hargobind Sahib's kara, that's the template which was used. And the way the karas existed before the Sikhs was that, you know, they would be made to fit to size. They would have a protrusion. So if someone tried attacking you with a sword, the protrusion would ward off the blow. And at the same time, if it came to, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat, you can even take the cutter off and smash the crap out of people. And I, I think you actually saw that happen, didn't you? Ah, the winning, yes. Yep. So guy used a cutter to knock out a few people? Uh, two of them, yep. Nice wedding, nice wedding. So... You know, those are pretty much basically the five kakars covered. So 
when did case existence? You know, that's the first question. And then the Gurleen Court case, they actually had the testimony of Pai Gurdas brought out. And, you know, we know Pai Gurdas probably saw the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth gurus, and probably Guru Angad as well. So, you know, his vars are used to decode Gurbani. And there's a particular var, you know, var 36, 40, 11, where he's actually talking about those who are fake gurus. Now, I'm not providing a literal translation word for word. I'm just providing the contextual translation, keeping in mind what the court found at the time. And that's this. This is just the summary. The fraudsters appropriate the parents of the gurus to feel the gullible. They adorn five-piece dresses and mandatorily retain similar unshorn beards and hairs. They retain a multitude of weaponry and keep close their knights who they instruct to emulate them in appearance. They brandy about their fame and make themselves known to men of multiple nations, but like effeminate men are useless to strong-willed women. Likewise, these prophets of falsehood are rendered obsolete next to the true guru. So, notice how they mention the hair in there. The two. Two other particular verses were brought out as well. Now, there's a way to decode, well, not decode, but comprehend Gurbani verses, which is pretty much the last line should be applied to the above lines. So where the number is, that line is the gist. That's the summary. That's providing the context. You take that line and apply it to the top unnumbered lines and you get what Gurbani is talking about. So on Anga 564, there is a very... Uh, you know, big verse. We're just providing the English translation. So please note Anga 564 of Shri Guru Granth Sahib. It goes like this. Your eyes are shining and your teeth glimmering. Your beautiful nose is accentuated by unshorn hair. Your body seems like it is cast out of simmering gold with a gold-like body adorned with divine rosaries. Focus yourself, sisters. Sikhs, you will not be left stranded at death's abode if you meet with such guidance. Whether swan or crane, the filth of your mind will be burnt away, your eyes shine and your teeth glimmer. So the summary we have for that is that this is a highly metaphoric verse. It is authored, it is written by Guru Nanak, who utilizes contemporary metaphors to sum up the image of a perfect sea. So what Guru Nanak is saying is that, you know, shining eyes, that means intelligence. Glimmering teeth means perfect speech. Those who possess both intelligence and politeness are physically handsome and beautiful. They might not be, you know, literally physically handsome and beautiful according to society standards, but in the eyes of Guru Nanak, they are. Their beauty is augmented by unshorn hair, which frames their faces and draws attention to them. Their bodies, on account of cultivating health and dedication to their maker, are almost gold-like. The reference to the rosary is figurative, given that, you know, Gurmat does not value rosaries. What it symbolizes is discipline. So both men and women are referred to as sisters to heighten the intimacy of the Guru's address. So what it's saying is with sole focus on their makers, the Sikhs will cultivate a persona reflecting their beliefs and will avoid the fear of death. So their eyes and speech will forever be remembered, even after they're long gone. You know how we say, or the ball at that is he that's what Guru Nanak is referring to and in between he has actually mentioned case now the counter argument by Gurleen Kaur and the others I believe was this that this is referring to the soul bride right uh, no I don't know about that I haven't read the yeah. case but I mean, the aspect is that if it's referring to the soul bride and this is the excuse which you know the Dilsaf crew always bring up as well then 
if that's referring to the soul bride, why is the hair mentioned so explicitly? Why is the physical form mentioned so explicitly? Because wherever Guru Nanak talks about the soul bride, there's no physical description, not such a comprehensive physical description anyway. And if it is the soul bride at the end of the day, or if it's about a woman, let's say they say, well, it's about a woman. So does that disqualify men from becoming Sikhs? Hmm. <laughs> Can you hear the fake feminist scream just now? No, I'm going to stay away far from that. Not, <laughs> right. not even the same so, universe. <laughs> Another verse is on Ang 98. Now, one thing you need to remember here in Avjit Singh Ji is that when Guru Nanak or any of the Gurus utilizes any, you know, when they utilize any name for Guru, it usually refers to a virtue or a quality, but not a physical form, right? Yeah, usually that's the way, yeah. So here's this verse by Guru Arjan. Nirhari kesav nirvare Kot jana jake puje pere Gurmukh herde jake har har soi pagat ikate jiyo Right? Taking that same formula, the translation we're getting is that without hunger, long-haired and without any fear. Such are the beings at whose feet countless masses fall. Such are they who have transformed their minds into Gurmukh. So the last line basically provides us the context, you know, that it is talking about Gurmukhs. The verse is talking about Gurmukhs. You take that last line and go up and what it's saying, if you understand the whole context, is that the Gurmukh are they whose minds are imbued with their maker to who they're dedicated. They have no hunger for any worldly glories. They have no fear and they're long-haired. Countless masses fall at their feet. So, you know, countless people run to fall at their feet and these are the Gurmukhs. It doesn't say that Gurmukhs say that don't fall at our feet before anyone accuses us of saying that worship Gurmukhs, but that's just the way it is. Now, long-haired, the term used is Gesev, but in my experience, I've never seen Gesev used in Gurbani to refer to Wahiguru by any of the Gurus because Gesev refers to a physical quality, but Guru Nanak says that Wahiguru has no form. Mm-hmm. Two Shabbats from Gurbani and the testimony of Pai Gurdas indicate that the perfect Gurmukh is one with case long hair. Now, if we accept that, because if you look at the Janam Sakhi artwork and you look at all that sort of, you know, the Sikh artwork, the frescoes, Guru Nanak is, you know, primarily, well, I mean, Guru Nanak is 100% shown in his successors with long, unshorn hair, right? So, it seems that these verses, similar verses, were actually written by the Guru to encourage his Sikhs to have that very different identity. So we can say that Kes was made a part of Sikh identity from Guru Nanak, and this is supported by Janam Sakhi material, which has been authenticated. Now, of course, if you want to dismiss it because the Pujari you think wrote it, well, that's your own prerogative. So at the same time, when Kes is made mandatory for Sikhs, guess what else is made uh, mandatory for Sikhs? The Ganga. Yep. Well, yeah, with case, yes. With case, right? Isn't that so, common sense? No, Jeet Singh Ji, common senses are so rare among Sikhs today that it's pretty much classed as a superpower. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, strongly agree. Not just Sikhs, everywhere. 
pretty much. I mean, some of the most stupid arguments I've heard on this aspect is that why wasn't a turbine mentioned in these Shabbats? Because we need to wear turbans as well. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, Guru Nanak did not have the time to sit down and think up your stupidity and answer all of your stupidity, which is pretty exponential and infinite. I think there, there is a mention. I've forgotten where it is, but it is there. <laughs> right. Now, okay. when we come okay. down... Asking a question from the little soft missile. Little soft okay. missile. Well, are mullets allowed? Long hair. Well, I mean, I have a counter question for the Dilsaf, uh you know, missile. May I please ask that counter question? Yeah. Uh, well, you were the target, anyhow. Wandering the streets of South Auckland, or let's say in the Bogan part of Australia, you will see mullets everywhere. Yep. Especially in the rugby league, <laughs> rugby league crowd, and especially in the southern part of New Zealand. So, <clears throat> is that acceptable? <laughs> or downtown New York? Don't forget downtown New York. They've even got that Bogan hairstyle down there now. <laughs> oh, we love our Bogans, mate. They're good people. They're southern yeah, rednecks. Uh, well, I mean, I've seen something about the rednecks is that they have quite a, you know, heightened appreciation of intelligence and they're pretty intelligent themselves. But I guess, you know, old habits die hard and that's the same problem with Delsafs. Now, anyway, moving on from there. See, you know how I asked you those questions about Guru uh, Gurbani not saying when Guru Nanak was born or, you know, Gurbani having nothing where Guru Nanak explicitly mentions who his successor was or Gurbani not mentioning 10 gurus? Well, doesn't that emphasize to you the importance of history? Mm -hmm. So moving on now, historically speaking, what evidence do we have that Guru Gobind Singh gave us case? Now, of course, there was a question. Oh, it was a statement from an individual that I would be surprised if all of the sources you provide are not 100 years after Guru Gobind Singh. Give a look at advice. Huh? Be ready to eat your words. First strong evidence we have is the Nishan Nesaki. It's in Persian. It mentions all five Kakars. Now, it has been appended to some Dasam Granth manuscripts, but the writing format, the style, and the age of the composition shows that it was probably in existence before the Dasam Granth. And it's not by Pai Nandalal, but Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So what happened was that McLeod, you know, this is, this is how stupid McLeod's argument was. When people were saying Guru Gobind Singh Ji wrote it, he said, well, no, Guru Gobind Singh Ji did not write it. Why did Guru Gobind Singh Ji not write it? McLeod had no answer. And then when they were saying Pai Nandalal wrote it, he said that because Pai Nandalal is not Amritari, he could not write about the punch cards. Hmm. Interesting argument. Interestingly stupid argument because McLeod wasn't a Amritari himself, but he was writing about the Khalsa. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Interesting yep. argument. Yep. So, you know, the research of uh, Gurinder Singh Man of the UK indicates that, you know, this is probably Guru Gobind Singh Ji's own written work. It mentions the five Kathars and it mentions their necessity that, you know, the Sikhs have been given a new form. Well, not actually a new form. Actually, here's the thing. Guru Gobind Singh Ji never says it's a new form. 
So that also indicates to us that these Tatars were in existence prior to Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Most likely, these were utilized by the Akal Sena of Guru Arjan and Guru Har Gobind Sahib. A question. Yes. Hello? Yes. Oh, Your sorry. Question. Okay. If we believe that 20,000 people took Amrit on that day, on that Vasakhi in 1698, 1699, yep. are we willing to admit all 20,000 already had the hair and the turban? Ah, classic, classic, classic. I see where you're coming from. I see where you're coming from. See, spirituality and Sikhi isn't an internal matter. It's an external matter as well, because like we have blocked ourselves false in the past, what is inside comes on the outside. You actually need to think about it, that if the descriptions and Persian sources and the Janam Sakis are correct, then that means case was a marker of Sikhi from the start. And on that day, they would have surely kept their case. Or otherwise, Guru Sahib secretly issued letters to all 20,000 of those people maybe years ago to start keeping their cash. <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose the easy way out of this is just to say, well, you know, Well, it's a common sense question. Your kid might ask you this question tomorrow. Like I said, Navjit Singh Ji, the Sikhs who talk more about common sense other than us two are the ones who lack common sense. So at the end of the day, if they want to deny history, well, all good, but the evidence is there in front of you that case was a marker of Sikhi from the start. The thing is, the Akal Sena's discipline was the same as the Sikh discipline, the Sikh head of Guru Nanak, and that same discipline was ratified and installed by Guru Gobind Singh Ji among the Sikhs universally because this marg is the marg of Sepahi Sant. Defending myself, I like to say that I've done a lot of stupid things in my life and uh, I'm just trying to improve myself. Well, hey, we've all done a lot of stupid things in our life, but I mean, I've never seen such stupidity as I'm seeing now that the Pujari went around, you know, fabricating 20,000 histories just to give Sikhs this identity and make them into a cohesive whole. Doesn't that sort of just defeat the purpose of the Pujari trying to oppose the Sikhs? <laughs> that can never be answered, eh? You know, like, you know, once one of my professors told me there's no cure for fuckwitism. And, you know, at these times, I agree. I fully agree. So, moving on from Nishan Nesaki, we can say that is in Guru Gobind Singh Ji's own hands. The second evidence we have, and this is my favorite one, is the Shri Guru Katov Pai, Jeevan Singh Ji Shahi, that mentions the five Ks, mentions the five Baniyas, but again, much like McLeod upgrades and missionaries, they want to argue that it is too modern in its approach and cannot be considered an authentic source. However, as established by Professor Rajkumar Hansaniti Singh, it employs vocabulary already in the Shri Guru Granth Sahib, like the word Amritpan. It provides critical and verifiable details of the 10th Guru's life between the commencement of his incumbency and the creation of the Khalsa, which have been verified by field research. And you know, Navjit Singh Ji, the irony here is that the arguments McLeod made against historic texts are the same arguments our Sikhs are beginning to use against themselves. 
McLeod claimed that, you know, stuff like this was too modern, too intellectual. It was, you know, later generation work. It's easy to make a statement, but hard to qualify it. And the very content of the Shri Guru Katha, the only problem they have is that the Shri Guru Katha mentions the five things. But, you know, like Professor Rajkumar Hans pointed out to us and Professor Balavan Singh Ji Tillo, that at the end of the day, we have only got 2% of written chronicles on Sikh history. There's 98% waiting out there to be found. And the fact is that if a majority says Panch Kakars, does it mean all of that is modern and a Pujari creation? Well, if you, if you are using this excuse, Pujari creation, then this excuse can be applied to everything. It can be applied to everything, but it's just a out at the end of the day, an excuse. The thing is, there is Dalit Sikh literature. You know, I apologize for saying this, but, you know, Arab Sikhs have discriminated much against lower caste Sikhs. Their textual history has never been looked at. Who knows how many written treasures are there to be found with them? Well, if they allow allow it, the best way to authenticate them could be uh, carbon dating. Yep. So quite a lot can be done if people have the intention to do it. So moving on, number three, Hukam Nama of Guru Gobind Singh Ji to Sangats of Kabul. Now, here's a little story. When I first discussed the Sukham Nama with someone, they told me that Dr. Ganda Singh believed it to be fake, so it's 100% fake. And I said, really? And they said, he is 100% fake. Ganda Singh was a Sikh historian, blah, 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 blah. And you know what question I asked that person? Huh? I said, Dr. Ganda Singh believed in the Dasam Granth, so do you believe in the Dasam Granth? It's been three years, I'm still waiting for an answer. Well, I'm surprised I didn't fight you. <laughs> okay. Didn't, okay. didn't they call you uh, Jansiana Banda or something? Oh, the, the favorite one is RSS, the agent. Yeah, of course. Yep. No. The history of this Hukam Nama is that the thing is, this Hukam Nama goes a long way into explaining a few details about the lives of Afghani Sikhs. There was a court case done in the early 20th century where the Afghani king at the time, the monarch, he actually passed a resolution saying Sikhs are different from Hindus and should be treated differently. And this resolution is pretty big. Sangat Singh actually saw it and it mentions the five Kakars being in existence among those Sikhs around the late 1600s period. So you can see that they knew, the Afghanis knew that the Sikhs had something like this. <coughs> okay, okay. Say it again, please. Say it again. The Afghanis, the Afghanistanis knew that the Sikhs were wearing takars from the late 1600s onward. So there was an edict, let's say, or a statement from the king of Afghanistan. Yes, that's a whole ruling. That was a whole document saying that Sikh Gurdwaras are different, Sikh identity is different, Sikh scriptures are different, Sikh philosophy is different, Sikh values are different than those of Hindus. Because at that time, Afghanistan was enlightened and they did not want to sort of steamroll over these issues of identity based on the fact that they were Muslims and the others were non-Muslims. And what's the date on this uh, ruling? I believe around 1910. It's around the period prior to 1920, so at the tail end of the Sangha Sabha. So this Hukam Nama, though, is one of the crucial parts of the jigsaw puzzle because that Hukam Nama sort of establishes something which, you know, historians have been thinking for a long time that there must be more Hukam Namas of the Guru out there 
or how else is it that the Sangats of Kabul, so far away from Punjab, had the five prakars as well? Are you telling me that the Pujaris went so far as to corrupt all the Sikh communities all over the world? That's a paradox. Big paradox. So now this the paradox, of... the paradox is the following. If they were so good at their job, you wouldn't know they exist. <laughs> yep, that's right. So, regarding this Hukam Nama, there's a story here. This Hukam Nama mentions Kesh, Kach, Kirpan, and Kara. And then in the le next line, it emphasizes that the Ganga be done twice on the hair. So, now, a copy of this Hukam Nama was dispatched to Professor Ganda Singh, but he refused to study it, citing that it's probably a forgery and no other source mentions the five Takars. Now, the fingers Ganda Singh actually believed that he had discovered all there was to discover in Sikh history. That was his big mistake. You can't say all historians are perfect. Same was the case of Shamsher Singh Ashok. You know, he put the cart before the horse in regards to the Sukham Nama as well and dismissed it. So, you know, those Afghani Sikhs who sent them copies decided, okay, you know what, stuff it, we're not even going to bother. Only Gobind uh Singh Man Sukhi studied it and concluded it was an original rendition of the Guru. Because Ganda Singh and Ashok saw copies, that copy never had Guru Gobind Singhji's own seal on it. And based on that, what they said, what they claimed was that the copy was the original. But if it didn't have the seal, it was a forgery. But, you know, a copy is a copy and the original was still in Afghanistan. Okay, a question for you. Yep. That ruling by the Afghan king, let's say, that Sikhs are not Hindus and they are very different from them. Did anybody from the community stood up and say that we fail or we refuse to differentiate ourselves from the local Muslims as well? Well, no, there was nothing like that. The Sikhs actually accepted a ruling that they're a different community living in Afghanistan. They're neither Hindu nor Muslim nor Christian. So differentiating themselves from Muslim wasn't Islamophobic? Oh, yes, I remember that we can't do that because we throw another community under the bus. But that's, you know, an issue with the American Sikhs. It's up to them to sort out whatever it is they're aiming to do. Oh, I'm just trying to figure out that how did the local, let's say, Afghan Sikhs at that time took this ruling? Well, from what I understand, they were pretty damn happy about it. As it should be. Yep. So these... Three, Nishane, Sikhi, Gurkata, and Hukam Nama of Guru Gobind Singh Ji to Sangats of Kabul, they mentioned the Takars. Now, the thing, Navjit Singh Ji, you also need to think down here is that you see this in, you know, Rehat Namas, which came immediately after. There is no mention that you wear the Takars and suddenly become an angel. Mm hmm. But there is a practicality mentioned to the Kakars. Kesar mentioned as being the oldest form of the Sikh identity. Ganga is practically to keep your case clean. Kirpan is for offense and defense. Kara is to save your arm, you know, your wrist while using the Kirpan. It can also be used as a knuckle duster. Kach is for maneuverability. What the upgrades, the traditionalists, and the missionaries are looking for is a hundred percent bona fide evidence for whatever agenda they have that at the end of the day the guru is saying here are the five takars these takars are divine for you 
they will never find anything like that because the Guru never saw them as being symbols. He saw them as being practical elements of the Sikh identity. And none of these things... Okay, sorry. All of these things have a, a use in everyday life. They have a use in everyday life. That Hukam Nama and other accounts make it clear that the Guru, like, you know, this was something which was suggested to me by a UK Sikh intellectual, God bless the UK, I mean, especially if they got, you know, intellectuals like this, is that this was just a temporary resort by the Guru to foment a Sikh identity so the Sikhs can stay united and keep fighting. Thing is, why did no other Guru ever saw, you know, that they had to unite the Sikhs like this? What was the point of the Guru saying that, hey, you need to be united physically when the Kal Sena already had a uniform from the past? And these were just, you know, normal everyday weapons and, you know, practical things which people used at the time. So at the end of the day, that argument doesn't hold water. But, you know, you need to approach all these manuscripts with the Karian perspective of history, which involves studying the author, their times, and the internal evidence of the text. And what you understand is that, you know, Guru Gobind Singh, you never saw the five Pitaras as being divine in themselves. Rather, they were to, you know, keep the Sikhs on the straight and narrow, which is following your head practically. But at the end of the day, the Takars weren't divine in themselves. They did not make you divine. They were a uniform for you. So when these Monet people go around saying that, hey, wait a second, we have the discipline without the Takars. Well, I call bullshit on that because, you know, the path of Sikhi is hard. How can you have the discipline anyway? You guys aren't ready to even keep your case and stand out in society, you know. Kudos to all the Mondays who want to keep their case, who want to walk on the path of Sikhi, who are working towards it. But others who are turning this into an excuse, well, you know, what are you guys trying to do other than make Sikhi, you know, a watered-down version of itself and palpable for non-Sikhs? Hmm. Right? Fourth evidence we have of the time is Parchia of Sadhu Seda Sevadas. It's a contemporary anecdotal biography of the Gurus written by Sadhu Sevadas. The debate raging now is that whether he was in Udasi or not, we're not concerned with it. He concurs with Pai Nandalal on several salient points. So this, you know, sort of proves that he was there at Anandpur at the time. And his words are, you know, confirmed by field research. This is his testimony of the Guru's address to the Sangat that Anandapur. My Sikhs will not remain without unshorn hair or weapons. A person lacking one or both is a non-entity or half an entity, but a person retaining both is fully human, for hair and weapons are signs of completeness. Highly metaphoric, but that's all we need to know. Number five is the Shri Guru Sobha of Chandra Sen Senapati. It's a primary account dealing with the manifestation slash ratification of the Khalsa. Its primary purpose is to associate the Khalsa with the entire lineage of the 10 Sikh Gurus, culminating in the Guruship of Guru Gobind Singh Ji, alongside Parchia and several contemporary Hathamas. Gursoba leads us towards a very critical theory for comprehending the practicality of the 5Ks and the history of their existence. More on that later, though. Because, you know, this is what he records the Guru's injunction to have been upon ratifying the Khalsa. My Sikhs are they who listen to me. Those who don't are rogues. The Sikhs who abstain from hookah and never cut their hair, they will be known as the Sikh of the Khalsa. So, you know, there are two things you can argue down here. One, there were no Panjabkars because Senapati doesn't mention it. But then that means you're burning the other evidence. Or two, 
Senapati knew what the Kakars were, but he saw them in a practical light and did not mention them because the Kakars did not have any, you know, spiritual purpose which the traditionalists have lent them today. Hmm. Right? Then we come down to the Pat Wahis. So these are a series of contemporary records wrought by eyewitness observers. Yani Garja Singh rediscovered them in the early 20th century. He verified several series of them before dying. His work unfortunately remains unfinished. The Vahis are intermixed with later Pandavahis, which were heavily mythologized. The Pat Pats, however, mentioned the 10th Guru establishing the Panchpakars as a necessity for the Khalsa. So they are spotted by Nishane Sikhi, Kabul Hukamnama, Gurkatha, and Sikh memory slash oral tradition. And the Patwahis were to play a very prominent part in another work which actually mentions more than just the five Kakars. But, you know, moving on. Then we have the Hetanamis. So, you know, while interpolations and corruptions have occurred, a consistent pattern can be established as regards to the Sikh identity. Other errors are usually the author's own predilections or changes which have crept in over time. So we have the Tankanama of Pai Nandalal. It's an interview between Pai Nandalal and Guru Said. It is highly specific and mentions case, Kirpan, and Kanga. This, however, is not the form of an injunction on which case should be retained, but rather combi or case, a Sikh without Kirpan is an imposter, etc. So, you know, Pai Nandalal asks specific questions, Guru Gobind Singh Ji gives specific answers. It's not, you know, genre. Then we have the Pai Dea Singh Rehetanama. It's not Panjipyare Pai Dea Singh. This is a different Dea Singh. It mentions the Kach, Kesh, Kirpan, and Kanga by default. Same with the Pai Desa Singh Rehetanama. Same with the Pai Chopa Singh Rehetanama. So Kach, Kesh, Kirpan, and Kanga. Which Kakar are they missing? What? Sorry, say again. These Rehetanamas mention the Kach, Kesh, Kirpan, and Kanga. So which Kakar are they missing? Kapan? The Kara. What? Sorry. Yeah, Kara. Yep. Kara. Why are they missing the Kara? Well, the thing is, at the end of the day, when they mention the Kanga, it too is mentioned in light of keeping your hair clean. Right? So... Ganga and the Kara without the Kirpan and the case are just useless items. Whereas, you know, the understanding you get from these Hukamnamas is that these Rehetanama writers saw the Kach case Kirpan as being the primary markers of the Khalsa identity. So they divided the Kakars into primary and secondary. So the primary was case and Kirpan and Kach. Now, Kach really didn't need anything to, you know, upkeep its maintenance. And I don't think those Rehetnama writers were the idiots like we have today who would say, well, why didn't Guru Sahib mention, you know, water to wash your kachere? So basically, the way they saw it is to keep your case clean, you had to have a kanga anyway. And to protect your wrist during combat, you needed a kara anyway. So why mention something which was common sense? Why mention something which was common sense at the end of the day? Do you, well, you need the common sense. <laughs> you remember the French Revolution? You were the one telling me that they actually mentioned weapons in one of their constitutional drafts, but then they decided, well, it's common sense. Free men keep weapons, but look at what it's got us today. Well, you also had to see that the revolution had occurred in 1789. 
And a lot of the soldiers had actually fought in the American independence movement, which concluded in 1783. So they already knew the importance of weapons. It's, it's like saying that the founding fathers should have actually turned around and said, don't give weapons to an idiot in the constitution. Well, I mean, the founding fathers had enough brains to know that society can figure out it, figure this fact out for itself. It's just that no one ever realized, seek and non-seek, the amount of stupidity we would have running in our DNA, especially in the 21st century. Is it stupidity or is it uh, excuses? How do you differentiate between these two? Stupid excuses. Amalgamation, okay. Yep, the best of both worlds, I suppose. Moving on, we... Yep. Moving on, we have the Vajab ul Araz, which is credited to either by Mani Singh or Sajitari Sikh, who inquired about the status of Sajitaris from Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So get ready for a nuclear bomb. The document has some corruption in the form of one allegedly, allegedly controversial injunction in which the Guru supposedly states that some Sajitaris, when under life and death compulsion, can cut off their hairs with scissors and then keep them again. Otherwise, keeping in line with Pai Gurdas's virus on the appearance of the Gurus, it has the 10th Guru confirming that here is the basic requirement of both the Sehejtari, Sehejtari and Amritari. Hmm. But yes, it must be made by the Pujari because it doesn't agree with a certain section of Sikh society. Well, that brings us to the question, for how long can you stay a Sehejtari? Well, that's the thing. Then we have the Prem Sumarag Granth, which is allegedly of Sahajatari authorship. It has been dated to be around the immediate post-Guru era. It mentions Kes, Kirpan, Kach, and Kanga and Kara are there by default. So these are just the Rehetanamas we have so far. There are more waiting to be discovered, but you know what they say? Only Vaheguru can judge me. Dilsa. Can I tell this to the judge in the court? You know, Navjit Singh Ji, on a tangent, when they say Vai Guru, I think what they're actually saying is Vai apostrophe GRU, you know, Guru from the Minions, they're invoking him. Like, Vai Guru, why did you betray us, Guru? Uh, okay. Tell me if I'm correct or incorrect on this one. Yep. If somebody says that only God can judge me, aren't they by default believing in Judgment Day? You know, if you were to study the psychology of such a stupid person, I think you would just kill yourself. I mean, how much stupidity can you take in the world? Tell me, how much stupidity can you take? I'm sure there must be a limit to stupidity before it destroys you. That reminds me of... Uh, well, it, it was said in a serious tone, but it was one of the best jokes I've ever heard. Yep. Uh, I knew this Dutch girl and... Uh, she was talking to some other person and she said she believes in re reincarnation but she refuses to believe that this much stupidity can be accumulated in a single lifetime. Yeah, you're right. So moving on, here comes the controversial parts. So then we have the apocrypha of the Dasam Grant. So obviously this episode isn't on the, you know, authenticity or in an inauthenticity of the Dasam Grant before, you know, we get shot. But, you know, 
there is some apocrypha in the Dasam Granth, whether it is written by the Guru or not, that's not the question we're going to answer, but then, you know, the Pagat Pagotivar, Ragasa Pache Dasvi, and multiple other similar compositions deleted by the Sodak Committee, they all mention the case and the Kirpan, and the occasional reference to the Kach. So, written by the Guru or not written by the Guru? If not written by the Guru, then definitely those individuals who wrote it knew that the best way to get in among the Sikhs was to mention their Tatars and their documents, so they would start trusting us. It's just a thought out there before, you know, both sides come crashing onto my side. Question. Yes. If today a redneck gentleman converts to Sikhi, can he claim that instead of a Karpani, he's going to hold a 44 Magnum in his, in his Shirisav? No, Jeet Singh Ji, is it best to bring a knife and a gun to a gunfight or is it best to bring a knife to a gunfight or nothing? Depends on the distance between you and the target. Exactly. So if the Guru could keep guns next to his Karpan, what's their problem today? So it's going to be one going from your left shoulder to your, to your right waist? One going from the right shoulder to the left side of your waist. Well, there you go. Why don't you put your kirpan on in a better fashion? And a holster on your thigh and one in your boots. <laughs> one in your boots. You, you have to make sacrifices. So anyway, moving on. When we look at later era Sikh sources, so first we have the Mahima Prakash of Sarup Das Palla. It's a versified account in poetic prose of the lives of the Ten Gurus. Its internal compilation date is 1776 AD, though some scholars believe it might have been completed later. While Lao was supposedly one of the French descendants of Guru Amardas, he mentions the case and Kirpan is Khalsa case. That's what stood out for him. But we have to remember the man was writing after some time. So, you know, obviously we can't just use the Korean analysis method on all these texts. Otherwise, this podcast will become eight hours long. Moving on now, here's the important one. This is where the Patva is coming again. The Guru Kiya Satya of Pats Rup Singh Koshis is an anecdotal hagiography composed by Pats Rup Singh in 1790 AD. He is believed to be a descendant of one of the original 11 Pats of the Guru Granth Sahib, and he wrote exclusively in an archaic and heavily codified language known as Patakri. It was later in the 19th century that Chaju Singh translated his words into Gurmukhi, while most of Koshis's material is derived from secondary sources, his description of the Khalsa initiation is based on what he researched and what he also personally observed. So what he heard Sikh say, Sikh oral memory. So he mentions the Kach, Kirpan, Kanga, Kara, as well as, and surprisingly, the Keski, therefore mentioning case by default. More critically, he mentions that the Guru initiated woman and they were given Kor for their surname and Singh for men. So again, because people refer to MacLeod, MacLeod never studied the original folios and blatantly lied that the work was a British era forgery because it incorporated English. He, however, was unable to produce any proof for this. Koshish's sources were mainly the Patwahis. So, you know, very critical source, Guru Kiyasatya. And the current English rendition was by, I think, Pal Singh Purevval and uh, Prithpal Singh Bindra. I might be incorrect, but I think those are the two who actually, you know, translated okay. it into English. One more question. It's a, it's a thought crime. Yep. Do you think Guru Nanak had Kesh from his childhood or when he became adult, he started growing his hair? 
I believe during those times, the fashion was to keep the hair during childhood, but they would have had to cut it off, wouldn't they, when he went for the genuine ceremony, and that's when he would have refused anyway. Okay, what about second Guru Sahib? That's it's a very I suppose that's a question that's that's a pretty big thought crime. Well it's a thought crime and also a question that will need to be answered. Hmm. Can we do okay. And this is for the listeners and for, for us as well. It's a research. Did the nobles at that time had hair or were the clean shimmer or something? They had hair, I believe, but they used to shave the facial hair, which the gurus never did. Hmm. So, moving on, we have the Gurubilas Patshay Dasvi, of course, in Kalal. It's based on the life of the 10th Guru. It incorporates much mythology in its narrative, as noted by Karamjit K. Malotra, but however, our king emphasis is still on the worship of the formless Akal. Gurtev Singh argues that this is a raw source and can be used to produce a refined source for Sikh history with careful analysis of what is fact and what is fiction. Kalal identifies three primary cases, Kutch, Kes, and Kirpan, but as Malotra notes, he then mentions Ganga by default as well as the Kara, saying that the Guru commanded the hair be combed twice and the wrist be protected. So that's Gurbalas Pashwe Dasvi. Then comes the Gurbalas Pashwe Dasvi of Sukha Singh. It's a copy of Kaur Singh's earlier work. He mentions the same as Kaur Singh. Then, of course, we have the Shri Guru Panth Prakash of Ratan Singh Pangu. It mentions Kach, Kes, Kirpan, and Kanga. Again, common sense, Kara, and, you know, the, yes, the Kara would have been there by default. So Kach, Kes, Kirpan, Kanga, Kara would have been there by default. We have the Suraj Prakash of Santok Singh. He also mentions the same. Sarblo Granth, which requires more critical analysis, is supposedly the work of the 10th Guru, but no, I don't believe that it requires more critical analysis. However, that statement at the moment and the internal content of the text does not par with the Shri Guru Granth Sahib. Recensions also have multiple compositions not found within others, and with the emotional position taken by the Nihangs, it is somewhat difficult to, you know, separate fact from fiction. However, the Sarblo mentions three, Kach, Kes, and Kirpan. Then, what happens, Navjeet Singh Ji, is in 1876, the Singh Sabha gets involved. And so the first thing we have is the Khalsa Shatakov by Bodh Singh. And it's signed off by Professor Gurmukh Singh and other Sikh intellectuals. And it is intended as an original Arhatnama, a universal Arhatnama after, you know, interviewing surviving original, original Nam Tari, Narankari, and many other elder Sikhs. It mentions Kach, Kes, Kirpan, and Kanga, but it also explains why these other texts did not mention, you know, Kara or Kanga, because those were always accepted as being the common sense Kakas. Yep, that's all true. After the Kalsha Shat, we have the Naveen Panth Prakash of Gyani Gansing. It also mentions the five Ks. Then we have the Khalsa Panch Sikha of Sumer Singh Jatedar Patnasa, which was first published in 1883. Now, there's an interesting tale here. In 1883, the Buddha Dal Nihangs, who survived the Anglo-Sikh Wars, so they were there before the Singh Sabha, 
they united with the administration at Hazur side, the Hazuri Sikhs, you know, Sikhs of Anandapur and several other Sikh communities and produced a document for Gurdwara management known as the Dastar ul Amal in response to Nirmala excesses in Gurdwaras. The Buddha Dal's explanatory letter written at the time to Raja Narayana Prashad of Hazur Sahib mentions that the Khalsa has Panch Bakar, Kach, Kes, Ganga, Kada, and Kirpan. This letter is still present in the Buddha Dal archives at Patiala. The same is recorded by Sumer Singh, who was the Jathedar of Patna Sahib. And he also explains the difference between the three primary Kakars, the Ten Mudre, and the two secondary Kakars, which had a more practical purpose than obviously the first three. Now, you know, one of our Canadian counterparts was telling us that a non-Sikh killed converted to Sikhi in Canada or states, I don't know where exactly. The stupidity over the origins of the Kakar started and that poor girl left Sikhi because our idiot kids kept on arguing over which Kakar was real and which wasn't. Well, these kids, let's say, lack life experience to begin with. Carlo Gallo. Then we have Hazur Sahib's 1913 Hukamnama, which was issued after the Nirmalas at Takal Takht denied the existence of the Kirpan and Sikhi. It justifies the existence of the five Ks and sets the minimum length of the Kirpan at 30 centimeters. Hmm, okay. Yep. And then the last we have, obviously, before the current Sikh Akal Takht Maryada, is the Chief Khalsa Devans Gurmat Prakash Pag Sansar. It was published in 1915. It was authored by Pai Teja Singh, Sant Gurbak Singh, Pai Veer Singh, Pai Jod Singh, Pai Tak Singh, and Pai Talochan Singh. It was first started in 1910, actually, and summarized five years of research. It is quite big, but also highly detailed, explaining the origins of the Panch Kakar in detail. It concludes with the Ks being the standard Khalsa identity. So the Kakars are the standard Khalsa identity. But due to the intellectual and, you know, big nature of the work, it does not find much favor with the rural Sikhs. I mean, you know, you need a little secret at Mariada, not an 18-volume secret at Mariada. So the SGPC later produced the current 1920 Akal Mariada after consulting the Pag Sanskar and other manuscripts. If anyone can get hold of the Pag Sanskar, you're very lucky because that is the most detailed historic Nama we have. It can destroy the likes of McLeod's and others and their arguments straight away. Mm-hmm. Then we come to Persian and Rajput sources. So these are predominantly eyewitness accounts, but they have their own biases. So the first one is a Rajput agent's letter to Jaipur. It mentions Guru Tegh the accompanied Raja Ram Singh to Bengal. It cites that the Sikhs are warring against Delhi under Banda Singh and that the recipient would do well to remember that the Sikhs retain their large facial hair and hair on their head, like their Guru Tegh who accompanied Ram Singh. Now, Ganda Singh always believed that Ram Singh wasn't the king who Guru Tegh accompanied to, you know, the West, I believe. But in reality, he ignored this letter as well. Hmm. Then we have Ghulam Ali Khan's Imodas Sadat of 1808. It mentions Sikhs are long-haired by belief. Muhammad Qasim's Ibrat Rama records the same. And there are other multiple Persian accounts which mentions how Bahadur Shah ordered that non-Sikhs cut off their hair so they could differentiate Sikhs and get them straight away. So that indicates that the other four Kakars might have been, you know, more or less like, you know, are you really going to go and say to someone, hey, can I see your underwear? And if it's the wrong type, I'm going to kill you. Don't give them ideas, man. Please. <laughs> 
And then we have the Makis at Tuarike Sikha, which forms part of Tuarike Punjab, first written in 1848 AD. It was translated by Dr. Ganda Singh, and it mentions the five Ks, even going so far as to you know, reproduce the Nishane Sikhi, if analytical studies are to be believed. So that's the non-Sikh sources. Now we come to the most critical ones, European accounts. And here's where the upgrade stupidity comes full circle, that either the Europeans introduced, oh, yeah, so that's what they say. Europeans wrote most accurate Sikh history, but the Pujari introduced the Kakars before the Europeans arrived in India. Mm. Now, obviously, as you know, with all accounts, they have their own biases. I saw the stupidity on Reddit where this kid just put up a picture of a book which says that, you know, Sikhs allow people from other faiths to join and practice those other faiths. One account written in 17... 90, I believe, and the author hadn't really even met a Sikh at the time, just seen them from far. But based on that one source, the kid did the Harjot Obroy pattern of arguing that Sikhs had fluid identity in the past, based on one source, ignoring the 800 others we have. Fluid identity is an oxymoron because identity is fixed. See, the thing is, when I see their logic, I can understand why that girl left Sikhi over the issue of the Kakars. I mean, I didn't blame her at the end of the day. If this is the stupidity she was given, well, you know, that we have fluid identity, Kakars don't exist, this source doesn't mention it, that source doesn't mention it, my two sources don't mention it, so I'll ignore all the 900 other sources we have. I mean, yeah, anyone would turn around and say, you guys are idiots and just walk away. Now, flipping the table now, one thing I'd like to point out here is that, interestingly enough, European accounts are laced with continued references to the Kara because the, you know, Khalsa metal ring was worn atop the right wrist. So like we said, our current Karas are watered down, but there's a reason why, you know, Europeans actually saw what they did is that the non-Europeans always saw the Kach case and Kirpan as being conspicuous because, you know, they were rarities. Mm -hmm. Now, the Europeans, the last European armored battle would have occurred during Guru Nanak's lifetime, probably around the 1510-1516 period. That means that the Europeans did not have any metal armor. They were particularly using guns, so they wouldn't need anything like the Kara for close hand-to-hand -hand combat. So obviously, when they saw the Sikhs with their Karas, when they saw a Sikh, they decided, okay, these people have medieval armor, so they have the Kirpan. Okay, that's unique. Uh, that's not unique about them. The case, okay, maybe that's not really that unique about them. Well, I don't think the European ever asked a CK, but he can at least see your underwear. So that's three Kakars gone. Probably never saw the Kara, uh, I mean, sorry, the Ganga as well. So that's gone. But they saw the Kara and they were very fascinated by it because they had nothing like it. They didn't, you know, have any memory of that being in existence because their battle with the gun had started and not with the sword. So, moving on. First one, Father Francis Xavier Wendell's History of the Juts, Patans, and Sikhs, written in 1768. So, he precedes the coursing Gurblas by a decade, and he actually says that Guru Gobind Singh did a big haven for Guru Nanak, and Guru Nanak actually uh, gave him two weapons, but who knows where he had that from. Basically, what he mentions is that having showed his disciples, so this is Guru Gobind Singh Ji he's talking about, having showed his disciples the arms that Baba Nanak had presented them with, he himself limited their mode of dressing and color to let their hair and beard grow. Then we have Duperon's researches in 1788. 
the Sikhs reject the 18 Puranas or books of the Gentile viewing as fable everything that is said about Brahma, Vishnu, Mahadev, whose divinity they deny. They do not accept images or sculptures. They wear a rosary of 109 beads around their necks, not sure where he got them from. Poor or rich, they're always dressed in blue. The greater part of them let their beards grow and are called Kalsa. Each will let his hair and beard grow and never cut them again. Right? Yes. Robert Oms, you know, of the Sikhs or Sikha, 1760. So this is the East India Company specialized, specialized historian writing. And he's talking about, you know, Zakaria and Mirmanu's persecution of the Sikhs. And this is what he says. There were no Sikhs. That is the caste who never cut off their hair left in Lahore. That's him. We come to mm -hmm. Colonel Antoine Henry Paulier. Now, his writings go from 1776 to 1802. He wasn't a big fan of the Sikhs, but listen to his accounts. Each is a mean who lets his beard grow, cries Waheguru, and eats pork, wears an iron bracelet. Then, this is regarding the history of the Sikhs. The chase became so hot that the very name Sikh seemed extinct, and those few who still remained were obliged by shaving off their beard and hair to deny their sect and leader. So there you go, Kes and Kara. Then their dress is extremely scanty, a pair of blue drawers, the Kach. And this is how he describes their religion with repeating the symbol to Wahiguru wearing an iron bracelet on one arm and letting their hair off the head and beard grow forms the whole mystery of their religion. So Kes, Kach, Kara, he saw those personally. Then we have James Brown's India tracks. Man, I just keep on going and going and going. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a long, long, long list, eh? It has to be a long list. So he mentions the Kara and Kes. This is Brown. In admitting a proselyte, they make him drink a sherbet out of a large cup with certain ceremonies. From the time he is admitted into the fraternity, he wears a steel ring around one of his wrists, lets his hair and beard grow to full length. These are British observations. Then we have Mount Stuart Elphinstone's note in 1809 where he says, their beards and hair on their heads and bodies is never touched by scissors. These are only some European accounts, mind you, Navjit Singhji. Then we have George Foster's A Journey from Bengal to England, 1783. A person desirous of becoming a member of the Sikh doctrine is conducted into the presence of five or more of their people or of any class or profession, assembled for the occasion when one of them pours into the hollow of his hand a little water. The military Sikhs permit the hair of the head and beard to grow long. They usually fix an iron bracelet on their left hand. So, bit of a wrong account but still it's accurate to a degree then we have john griffiths containing information respecting the character of the inhabitants on the banks of the indus 1794 so he actually thought sikhs were a very modern people quite impressed with them but he only saw them from far away and this is what he says they never shave either here or bear here here uh they never they not they never shave either head or beard then you have william franklin's military memoirs of mr george thomas 1803 after performing the requisite duties of their religion by ablution and prayer, they combed their hair and beards with peculiar care. The Sikhs, among other customs singular in their nature, never suffer their hair or beards to be cut. The arms and wrists of the Sikhs are decorated with bangles of gold, silver, brass, and iron according to the circumstances of the wearers. So what does yep, the... All those, well, those accounts just tell what we know all along yep observations then we have william thorne's memoirs of the war in india 1806 the soldiery have a however a custom of suffering the hair off the head as well as the beard to grow so that is the sikh soldiery he is talking about 
Then we have Captain Matthews, Maharaja Ranjit Singh's spy, who he personally caught out when he tried entering Lahore in 1808. So this is what he says. A Sikh wishing to become a singer finds no difficulty in accomplishing his proselytism. He goes to the Akalis at Amritsar who ask him if he wishes to become a convert and if so to produce proofs of his determination upon which the convert breaks with his own hands the small thread of cord worn across the shoulder by most of the Hindu sects. He is given to drink a sherbet made of sugar and water. After this initiation, he never shaves his beard nor cuts his hair. Okay. And then we have M. Raymond's translation of Ghulam Hussein Khan's Seer Mutakreen in 1789. And this says that General Banda fell into the victor's hands. He was a Sikh by profession that is one of those men attached to the tenets of Guru Govind and who never cut or shaved either their beard or whiskers or any hair, whatever, of their body. Mm. Now, the thing is that these accounts were written at a time when, you know, the Europeans were at war with the Sikhs or just observing them. So it was only after the end of the Anglo-Sikh Wars they actually sat down and realized there was more to the Sikhs than the hair. So we have Ernest Trump's the Adi Granth or the Holy Scriptures of the Sikhs written in 1877 AD. Now, Parminder Singh Kero in 2015 submitted a thesis for, you know, is, I suppose, PhD graduation. And in this, he mentions Trump's account, and I checked it personally myself. So he is right about this, but he's not right about another account. So, you know, Trump was as controversial as Donald Trump. So he was no great fan of the Sikhs, and he only worked with the Nirmalas who he thought were Sikhs. Well, you know, obviously there's a differentiation down there, but this is what he says. The Sikh, he must always have things with him, which all commence with the letter Kaka. Hair case, which must not be cut, comb kanga, a knife karad, a sword kirpan, and breeches running to the knee touch. So, obviously, he did not go into detail and figure out the kara. Anyway, the most comprehensive account we have, and this is where Kero gets it wrong. Kero references a 1881 account by McAuliffe, where McAuliffe mentions five case, but only names four. I suppose that you know, you can argue a lot about this, but, you know, how can Kero miss out the fact that in 1909, McAuliffe published Volume 5 of the Sikh Religion, in which he explicitly mentions the five Ks. You know, regarding Guru Gobind Singh Ji, this is what McAuliffe says, on this he gave them all the appellation of Singhs or Lions. They must always wear the five following articles whose names begin with the K, namely Kes, Ganga, Kirpan, Kach, Kara. Mm -hmm. so is this an omission by convenience or what is it? I don't know. Only Kero can answer what he has started. But then at the end of the day, Navjit Singh, you see this pattern down here is that, you know, most of these writers took it for granted that Sikhs would have enough common sense at the time to sort of see, you know, the usage of the kara. And what they have today is nothing like that. Sure. Rather, the, we have produced this dichotomy between the internal and the external where we are, you know, asking questions which are, you know, unnecessary. Now, we had this Prachadik come over once who met me and he was quite defiant against the five Ks. And, you know, the only point we both agreed on was the fact that Guru Nanak was born in Vaisak. He told me, and there were several others sitting there, that, you know, Katak was a bad month in Hindu thought. It still is. 
and the Udasis and Nirmalas deliberately changed Guru Nanak's birth from Vaisakh to Kattak as sort of revenge to argue that you know Guru Nanak was nefarious from the start. Or maybe for some people he was. Yep. And I asked them, so Kattak is a bad month? And he said, yes. Udasis and Nirmalas changed it. And he said, yes, from Vaisakh to Kattak. So I asked him, Shri Chand was born in Kattak. So why wasn't Shri Chand's birth changed from bad Kattak to good Vaisakh? <laughs> okay. This was one of the upgrade types. So, you know, end of the day to study history, you can't take the emotive position and start asking those questions because, you know, the logic you use can easily be turned against you. Yeah, but. Yeah, okay. Go on. Yeah, I understand your point. Yep. So, I mean, this is basically it. This is the historic evidence of the Tatars and, you know, fertile area for research, but I'm not holding my breath that our Sikhs will see to studying it even further and discovering new texts and sources. One group says that if it doesn't agree with my Babaji, my perceptions burn the text. Another group says that all these texts are corrupt and made by corrupt individuals. The third group is still lost somewhere in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, that's true. That's what's happened today. Right. So, any recaps before we finish it off? Because my throat wants a rest now. <laughs> Man, you've given me a long list. And this is evidence, not ideas. And I think that pretty much settles the point. Pretty much settles the point. This is only the tip of the iceberg, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all for today. Until next time, thank you for joining us. Vaheguruji ka khalsa, Vaheguruji ki fatah.